Not overwhelmed, not underwhelmed, not completely whelmed, but mostly whelmed. I'm your host, Sam R.B., and welcome to the world of the wild, weird, and wonderful. If you like what you hear, please consider subscribing to our Patreon at MostlyWhelmed.com. For $5 a month, you'll receive early access to future episodes, bonus clips, and other patron-only perks. Andy Herman is first and foremost a sinner who has been saved through the grace of Jesus Christ. His goal in life is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Andy is currently in seminary, studying for a Master of Divinity so he can be ordained as a pastor in his church. He has a wonderful wife, Tam, and son, Knox, and works as an American history teacher at a local Christian school. Today, Andy and I delve deep into many theological issues surrounding Reformed Christianity, including the nature of sin, faith, and God, Christian meditation and mysticism, overindulgence versus asceticism, and a brief overview of the canonization of the Gospels. Well, without further ado, hello, Andy, and welcome to the show. Hi, Sam. Glad to be here. (laughs) How are you doing? I'm doing well. I'm feeling good. Yeah? Yeah. How was your day today? It was a pretty good day. You know, it was a Wednesday, so getting through the middle of the week and uh, nothing out of the ordinary, really. So you're teaching uh, you're teaching history classes, is that right? Yeah, I teach eighth grade history at Hope Christian School. Uh, it's American history, so it's a lot of fun. We get to talk about where our nation came from and look at a lot of the trends that still influence our country today. Huh. What did you teach today? Uh, right now, we're, we were just finishing up the War of 1812, so we were talking about why America got involved in the Second War with Britain. We talked about the Battle of New Orleans today and... Uh, how it kind of uh, caused American nationalism to swell, right? And there's a lot more national pride after that battle and after the War of 1812 wrapped up. Uh, and that, so that was what we we're talking about today. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> what, what, tell me the gist of the War of 1812. Refresh my memory. The gist of the War of, the 18, of 1812. All right. So the War of 1812 came about because uh, Britain was harassing American shipping primarily. So... They were uh, impressing American sailors, so kidnapping sailors from American vessels and forcing them into service in the British Navy. Um, And they were blockading American shipping, especially if they thought it was going to France, making it pay taxes even if it wasn't going to England, things like that. They were encouraging Indian attacks on the Western frontier. Um, So Britain was just harassing and just not respecting America as a nation, and eventually the the American government just basically said enough is enough. We're, we're going to settle this. And so we declared war on Britain. Um, luckily they were also at war with Napoleon at the time. So we didn't really feel the full brunt of their power. Um, but we had a few battles here and there. We lost a lot of battles, but we won just enough battles that we just kind of ended up leaving things as they were. The The peace treaty actually didn't really settle any of the major issues that we had gone to war for, uh, but we we settled it and it we at least gained some respect as a nation that could hold its own. Mm. Yeah. Do you ever think about like this history that you're teaching? And I'm sure you have to like do some reading on your own to prepare for this. Right? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. I love reading history. So huh. Huh. What what is it about history that you like? <sighs> That's a big question. Um, I, I mean, for me, especially being a Christian, I'm a firm believer that God is providentially guiding all of history to a preordained conclusion that um, you could almost put it at, 
in in a sense like god is writing a story with this world like we are part of a story that god is writing and so in in my mind history is next to theology in terms of i i study history i think first and foremost because i think it teaches me more about god and about who i am in relationship to god um and and it helps me understand the world around me and how god has designed it as well so for me it's a very theological and spiritual discipline so what does the War of 1812 tell you about God? Oh, I might have to get back to you on that one. I, that's that's one that I still need to do some reflecting on. Um, I mean, there's a lot of themes you could draw out of the War of 1812, thinking about um, what does it mean to use, to use force and violence wisely in a God-honoring way, right? Um, and that, that's a whole separate conversation you could have. That's one that I've been trying to get my students to reflect on as we thought about that war. Um, because in a lot of ways, it was a war that accomplished very little, right? Mm-hmm. And so, um, were, were the people who fought it motivated it by God-honoring motives? Um, was, it, it, was it a just war? Uh, and and why, why would God permit uh, this young nation, right, to go into another conflict with the world superpower? That's another kind of providential question you could ask is, what is God doing with this war? I mean, I think if you look back, look back hindsight is 2020, right? You can see that God used that, uh, whether you're, this isn't necessarily a pro or anti-America thing, but God used that to stabilize America and kind of assert its place in the world, which then has allowed America to develop to where it is today, right? And I mean, extrapolating about the character of God, I mean, you, you certainly, there's certainly places we could go there. I don't know if we want to dive into that right away, but. Well, it's interesting because Right before we started recording, we were just talking about knights and yeah. how there was a kind of a code, a law, a sort of a law that they followed. And you could, you were telling me how the knights were one of the biggest points of importance for them was their their ability to be loyal. Yeah, you know? but that that loyalty, you could skirt around it a little bit, you know, in order to, um, and still retain your your sense of loyalty. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, you can play play with the boundaries, right? As long as you're following the letter of the law. Do you think? Because yeah. this is something I was thinking about, especially yesterday. I was reading um, the the uh, the the letter uh, that Paul wrote to the Romans. You know, yeah, just kind of a lot of what he's talking about is this concept between the law versus faith. You know, yeah, and yeah. it's something that has come up for me that you know other people of spiritual significance in my life. They've, you know, they've given me different perspectives on this. You know, uh, I've talked to a rabbi who told me that, you know, his interpretation of the law is, is, is that it, and, and what Paul also says about the law at, at one point is it illuminates a kind of, um, it shows us in this interesting way where sin essentially lies, you know, yeah, yeah, you follow the law because it points towards sin. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Paul does talk about that in Romans, right. About how, um, he, he essentially does lay out that the law is what, what reveals our sinfulness to us. Right. Um, and I think, what is it? So, in Romans seven. Yeah. Oh, go ahead. No, go, go, you, you go, go ahead. You go ahead. Uh, he, but he talks about how like, before I was under the law, right? I I did not know sin, but because of the law, I know sin. I'm paraphrasing there. Yes, I, I, yeah. That's not the exact wording, but um, so yeah. And and in the Reformed tradition, in my own theological tradition, that's we talk about something called the three uses of the law. Have you heard that terminology before? No. Um, so three different kind of 
main uses of the Old Testament law, right? And one of them is to reveal the sinfulness of mankind. We talk about that a lot. So we just yeah. opened a bunch of oh, cans so many of worms cans of worms. Yeah. Where do we even start? I don't know. Well, well, tell us briefly what is the reform tradition? Oh, phew, briefly. All right. Well, um, let me give a, as a history teacher. Let me give the quick history lesson. All right, and then we can dive more into particulars about theology and beliefs and things like that. Um, so history wise, right? You have um, the Christian Church started with Jesus, obviously, right? And um, and then in around 1054. There's a lot going on in the background here, but you have the split between the Eastern and Western Christian churches, right? And so you have the Western church in the Latin-speaking world headed by the Pope in Rome, and then you have the Eastern church, which developed into the Orthodox churches that still exist today, big O Orthodox. Um, and then uh, the Western church in in the medieval era, um, the Eastern church had its own things going on, but the Western church uh, started to become quite corrupt, uh, the, the clergy abusing its power, right? Um, moral, just absolute anarchy among among everyone in the West, and especially the clergy. Um, uh, an absolute loss of the true Christian faith, of, of the true gospel, of the, of the good news that Jesus came to bring about his life and his death and his resurrection. Uh, and so the Western church was really degenerating. Now, it's not to say there weren't true believers. I believe there always have been true believers who who believed the real gospel, the good news of Jesus throughout all of church history, but the Western church was in a really rough state. And so um, providentially in in the 16th century, uh, God raised up a generation of people who would call the reformers who broke away from the hierarchy, the institutional hierarchy of the Western Catholic church um, and formed what are now known as Protestant churches. So that began with Martin Luther, who... Uh, as his name indicates, right, was the founder of kind of Lutheranism. He he famously nailed 95 theses, 95 statements to the door of a church in Wittenberg, right, that stated his opposition to a lot of the abuse and corruption that was going on. And also the um, guy who Martin Luther King Jr. renamed his name after. Yeah, yes, that as well, that, that as well, right? Um, and so Martin Luther, right, was was one of the first major reformers. There had been people before him, but he really set off a movement that couldn't be contained in the way that others had been before, um, where where they recovered the great truths of the Christian faith. Um, and I'll, I'll talk about what those are in a minute. But he set off a movement, right, that was then mirrored in other countries around the what was the Latin world, although by this time they weren't all speaking Latin, right, but the Western European world primarily. Um, and so the Reformed tradition was one offshoot of that uh, that comes from this event known as the Protestant Reformation, um, primarily centered in England and Switzerland and the Netherlands, although there were offshoots in other places as well. Um, and so some of the core beliefs, I know that's a really broad overview and I feel like inside I'm screaming cause I'm skipping over so many details, but I just <laughs> to not, not bore any listeners too much. Um, some of the core beliefs that we hold that are distinctive for us, I think a really easy access point would be what are known as the five solas of the Protestant Reformation. So, uh, these are five kind of key points where we differed from the Roman Catholic Church that caused us to break off from them. Uh, so the first one is sola scriptura, which means scripture alone. Sola means alone in Latin, right? So scripture alone is our final authority. Uh, we don't believe that church tradition or that the Pope 
uh, have final authority. We believe that there are, you know, human authorities that have some standing, but scripture is the only ultimate spiritual authority. If there's ever a dispute about what God has said, what God has commanded, uh, we go to scripture. Uh, So, sola scriptura is the first one. Second one uh, would be sola gratia, means that we are saved by grace alone. Next one would be sola fide, through faith alone. And the reason I I combine those two together is uh, we believe that contrary to, not only contrary to Roman Catholicism, but contrary to the natural human tendency, uh, we can't work our way to God. But the only way we can be saved, the only way we can be put into right relationship with God is by grace, by a gift from God through faith in Jesus. So that is, um, God graciously has given us Jesus who died on the cross for us and we trust in him that that his work is sufficient for us to bring us to God. And so, uh, grace alone through faith alone, um, and nothing that we do can please God, nothing that we do can bring us to God, only trusting in Jesus and receiving his gift. So that's sola gratia. I have sola gratia tattooed on my wrists. Um, <laughs> sola fide. Um, and then the next sola would be, um, now I'm blanking, solus Christus. Christ alone. And that connects to those first two I, I mentioned. So we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. So only by trusting in Jesus Christ who died on the cross for our sins, not by trusting in anyone or anything else. And then the last sola is soli deo gloria, which means all for the glory of God alone. So this whole, this good news that God has graciously offered us salvation, graciously offered us relationship with Himself through Jesus is ultimately all for the glory of God. Everything that God has done is so that his goodness and beauty might be magnified and exalted. So, so that's, I know for people who are unacquainted, this is probably like drinking from a fire hose. So, you know, basically scripture's the final authority. Uh, nothing you do can save you. Only God's grace through Jesus can save you. And everything God does, including saving sinful people, is so that he would be glorified. Uh, those are key distinctives, I would say, of what we believe. There's a lot of other stuff, like as a Reformed Christian, I believe in what's called the confession of faith. Um, so it's called the West. There's other confessions as well, but my confession is the Westminster uh, Confession, and it's it's a more detailed doctrinal confession that I hold to mm. um, that comes from the Reformed tradition. And so the Reformed tradition also majors big on things like God's sovereignty. God is in absolute control of everything that happens. Um and and the idea that God freely gives himself through his grace. Uh, so th- that's a really big zoomed out thing. I know that's probably felt like a lot, but I'm skipping over so many things. But no. that's kind of the, the overview. You feel free to prod if anything felt unclear. Or, no, that's, um, I think it's good because it gives us a viewpoint into what you believe and yeah. kind of where, where, where we're going with this. You sure. Know? Yeah. Maybe we can go back a little bit, you yeah. know, because you're saying, you know, it's all about, salvation through grace and salvation through faith. Yeah. Where does the law stand for you in regard to all of this? Yeah. So the law, um, I, so let's, let me go back and, to the three yeah. uses of the law that we hold in the reform tradition. So the, the three uses of the law in the reform tradition would be, um, first the law reveals our sinfulness. So it reveals our need for God's grace, right? When we see, and when I'm referring to the law here, I'm referring to God's commands in scripture, um, his, as, particularly his moral commands here. Uh, so it it reveals our need, right? When I look at God's law, my, if I'm reading it correctly, my response should be, 
there's no way I can keep this. There's no way I can maintain this. I, I do not meet this standard. I absolutely fall short. Um, and so the first use of the law is it should reveal how sinful I am. Um, and so a true Christian has to first realize I am absolutely incapable of meeting God's standards. Uh, and the law should drive me to see my need. So that's the first use of the law. Um, and then, and obviously, hopefully, that causes us to turn to Christ, whose grace can cover us. Um, but to go back to the law, second use of the law, um, we would say is as a restraint for society. Uh, so even for non-believers, we believe God's law has a restraining function. Uh, we, I, I believe, and Christians throughout history have believed, right, that uh, humanity ever since uh, our first parents, Adam and Eve, sinned, uh, is fundamentally sinful, that we have a a sinful tendency, which means we naturally rebel against God. We naturally gravitate away from God and towards evil. Um, That doesn't mean everyone does every evil thing possible, but we naturally rebel against God. And so God's law has a restraining function in that it helps to curb the evil of humanity, right? Even for people who aren't believers, uh, they have a sense of what God's law requires of them, right? Everyone, I mean, if you ask 999 out of 1,000 people, is it okay to kill someone? They're going to say no, just instinctively, right? right? That's right. God, And we'd say that's because that God put that in us. There's a kind of universal human conscious. Right, right. And we'd say conscience, that's, that's part of the image of God in us. That's part of God's creative DNA, if you will, embedded in humanity, right? And so... Uh, God's law restrains the evil that we would naturally do. Uh, so that's the second use of the law. And then the third use of the law kind of ties back to the first one. Uh, once we see our need and we turn to Jesus for salvation, the law also then serves as a guide to how we should walk in life. So the, for believers, right, the law reveals our sin, but then it also serves as a guide. So once we have trusted in Jesus, and once we realize that Jesus has fulfilled the law for us and has covered us with his righteousness, then we're freed up not to view the law as a burden that crushes us, but to view it as God's good guidance for how to live in the world, right? And so uh, once you trust in Jesus, the law goes from being this heavy, weighty demand that you cannot meet. I mean, in a sense, it still is that you still can't keep it perfectly, but it goes from crushing you to then being uh, wise guidance from God on how to live your life. So that's the third use of the law. So I would see it working in all those ways. So what exactly, how, how would you define sin? Uh, so my confession, this is, this is where having a confession comes in, in handy, right? So I would say sin is the want of conformity unto or transgression of God's law. Uh, so any any lack of obedience to or disobedience of God's will for humankind, essentially. Um, there are other good definitions too. That's one way to define it. Another way to define it would simply be anything that does not give glory to God. Um, I'm a firm believer that, as I mentioned before, right, God does all things for his glory. And if, if that sounds bad, we can talk about why I think that's a good thing. Uh, but God does everything so that he would be glorified. Um, and so anything that dishonors God, anything that makes God look less than absolutely glorious, anything that makes God l- anything less than the absolute center of the universe is sin. And so that would be, you know, anything that breaks God's law because God's law is designed to glorify him. Um, but it, it's, you could say disobedience to God. You could say breaking God's law. You could say 
regarding God as less than absolutely glorious. I think all of those function as good definitions of sin. And then how do you define God? God. Um, I mean, there's a lot, again, a lot of ways you could define God. Actually, let me, I don't have this one memorized, but I'm going to pull it up for you, okay, okay, on my phone here. Again, this is why confessions are really helpful, and I'll, I can expand on this afterwards, but this is a helpful starting point. Um, question four, we have something called a catechism in our confession, right, that is a set of question and answers meant to teach about the faith, uh, and I should have this one memorized by now, but I don't. So, <laughs> uh, this is question four of our catechism that teaches about the basics of the faith, and the question is, what is God? The answer is, God is a spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. And there's so much packed packed in there, right? right? But God, I mean, I think it's important to recognize God is, first of all, he's a spirit. He's not a physical human like you or I. Um, he is infinite and eternal. So everything about him is infinite. Uh, there's no limitations to God in any way, in his power, in his being, uh, in his existence. He's unlimited, right? He's limitless, uh, infinite and eternal. Um, he's unchangeable. I think that's really important to recognize. God doesn't change. Everything in the world around us changes, but God does not change. Um, and then it lists some of his attributes here, and you could expand this list, but he's, his wisdom, his power, his holiness, his, that means like purity, right, or perfection, mm-hmm. his justice, his goodness, and his truth. All of those core attributes of God um, are true of him. And it's important to connect that, that back to what we said at the beginning, that they're true of him infinitely. He is infinitely wise and powerful and holy and good and just, right? Not not just in a limited sense. Um, and, and because he is infinitely those things, he is definitive of those things. Uh, so is God all-encompassing? It depends what you mean by all-encompassing. You know, I've talked to various people of various different, you know, religious and spiritual beliefs. And it's, it's kind of interesting to try to connect the dots between all of this. You know, yeah. Some people, like um, some Hindus that I've talked to, they've told me that, you know, God is ever-present within everything, you know. So even even the worst parts of humanity, they would argue, God is part of that as mm-hmm. well. Yeah, so I would not hold that um mm-hmm. i would i would say god's all encompassing in the sense that he he's the creator of all things he is the sustainer of all things all things have their existence from him um paul says that in in romans right uh for but anyway so um i think i would want to make a distinction that creation is not god mm-hmm. right so we that's another another reformed distinctive although other christians believe this as well it's something called the creator creature distinction everything is from god everything has its existence from god uh, god is the only eternal being there's nothing else that has existed alongside him right but his creation is fundamentally distinct from him creation is not god and god is not the creation um, and, and scripture makes that very clear. I mean, you can go through the Old Testament and look at the way that God describes his transcendence um, and his separation from creation. And that's part of the idea within that attribute of holiness. When you think about uh, to be holy is to be set apart. And God is the one who is absolutely set apart from all else. Um, so, yeah, I would say he, he sustains and uh, upholds all things, but he is not in everything in like kind of the pantheistic sense that some other religions would hold. So do you believe that God in some sense cannot even be witnessed in this creation? 
No, I don't believe that because, uh, because I believe that God has graciously chosen to reveal himself mm-hmm. to us. Mm-hmm. I, I don't think that we have the means of accessing God by ourselves. I don't think that humanity is innately huh. capable of reaching up to God, so to speak. But I believe that God has graciously condescended to make himself known to us. Uh, first and foremost, in the person of Jesus Christ, um, and also in a in a connected way through scripture, which is why I believe that scripture is the ultimate authority, because it's where God reveals himself. Um, and in limited ways, his scripture testifies to this in limited ways within his creation as well, although in a much more limited sense than I would say he does in scripture or in in Christ. But but one important distinctive to, to put there is that it anytime we have true knowledge of God, anytime we have true access to God, it's always because God is graciously revealing himself to us. It's always because he is graciously condescending down to our level, not because we have the ability to climb up to him, if that makes sense. Yeah, I see. So, in other words, God chooses when to reveal exactly. himself to all of us. Exactly, yeah. It's it's his prerogative if he will be known. Do and you, thankfully, he has made himself known. <laughs> do you feel like in your own life, God has revealed himself to you outside of scripture? Oh, that's and a, outside of Christ as well. That's a tricky one. I, I So, I want to make a distinction here. I don't think that God ever reveals himself apart from Christ. I see. Um, so de- it depends what you mean by outside of. I, d- I do believe, you know, that I've had experiences where I have felt God working or if sensed God um, in some kind of subjective way that is not just the fact that I'm just reading my Bible, right? right? But I believe that it's always tied to the truth that's revealed in Scripture uh, and in Christ, who is the one who's revealed in Scripture. Yeah. Um so, so it depends what you mean by outside. I, I, I don't think that like we're, I think there is a subjective or more experiential element to how God reveals himself to believers, but it's always tied to the scriptures and tied to Christ, if that makes sense. Yes. Um, yeah. It's that's, interesting that, oh, well, there's so much ground to cover. Yeah. Oh yeah, there is. Let's just, let's go. I mean, I'm yeah, enjoying yeah. this. <laughs> I mean, so, you know, the first tenant you just said about the reformist tradition is it's what is it the the sola scriptura yeah so yeah. that the scripture is ultimately the final authority yeah so so then doesn't that in some sense sort of nullify all the rest of the solas no not at all because that's what scripture teaches scripture huh. teaches the rest of the solas right but um, the solas themselves are not written in the scripture no but they're they're a clear formulation of what i would say is the teaching of scripture i mean I see. like go to ephesians chapter 2 8 through 9 paul says for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is a gift, uh, so that no one may boast, right? I mean, right there, you have grace alone, saved by grace through faith. It is not your own doing, it's a gift, right? Faith, you are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, right? You might, I mean, we're adding the word alone there, but it's that's the implication that Paul's making, right? Um, and Paul in Romans, as you mentioned Romans, right? Paul talks about how we're justified by faith, not right, by works, right? right? Um, so, I don't think it nullifies them in the sense that any any statement of faith outside of Scripture is subordinate in the sense that Scripture is the only final authority. But I think there's dangerous territory you can fall into there because I don't think that means that you can't have true statements of faith outside of Scripture, 
right? Like, because God has chosen to reveal himself in human words through mm-hmm, scripture, mm-hmm. I think we can use our human words to truly express the truth about God, right? Yeah. Um, because God has chosen to use words, we can use words. And so, uh, yes, they're they're subordinate to scripture, but if they faithfully reflect the teaching of scripture, then then they carry the authority of scripture. Does that make sense? Right. I mean, even Paul says, like, non-believers can still have faith, you know, they can still, you know, abide by the law without explicitly knowing it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Which gets into an interesting topic that I've thought about a lot is, what do you think about um, Christian mysticism? (sighs) That's a broad, I mean, Christian mysticism is so broad, right? Um, Depending on how you're defining that tradition, I think there's some things that might have that label that I would really love, some things that would have that label that I really wouldn't love. I mean, one of the dangers, I think, of Christian mysticism, or at least some things that would be labeled Christian mysticism, is the tendency to uh, leave Scripture behind. I see. Or to relegate Scripture to kind of like, well, that's, you know, kind of the boring old thing that maybe (laughs) basic people need. But if you really know God, you can go beyond that. I see. Um, And I I think that's really dangerous. I think that's where you get into people, um, ultimately, where you run into the danger of people creating God in their own image. Rather Uh, than looking at what God says about himself, they invent what they want God to be. Uh, that's the danger of leaving scripture behind. I think there there are some things that would be labeled Christian mysticism that I'm totally on board with. I mean, I am a firm believer that Christians and anyone who becomes a Christian, anyone who turns to Jesus should seek to experience God's goodness, mm-hmm. should seek to to know God on more than just an intellectual level, but to truly, as, as Psalm 34 says, taste and see that the Lord is good. Uh, I, I think we are meant to know God in a personal sense, not just to have a right set of beliefs. Um, so, so I'm, I'm all for a kind of, if you want to label it mystical pursuit of God, absolutely. I think it needs to be firmly rooted in scripture, in what God has revealed about himself. Uh, but I absolutely embrace and personally pursue experience of God and his goodness mm, every day. Mm, mm. That's something I'm striving for more and more of. <laughs> well, maybe we can put a little pin on that topic. Yeah. Because yeah. what I'd like to ask you from there is, how do you define faith itself? Faith. Um, well, Hebrews defines faith as the assurance of things hoped for and confidence in things unseen. So I've heard the substance also. So the, yeah, that's another translation of the same verse, right? The substance yeah. of things not yet seen. It's very um, interesting, isn't it? Yeah, it, it really is. I mean, I, I think another another way that I often like to define faith, fundamentally, it's believing what God says. Mm. Um, right. It's, and this is what Paul talks about with Abraham when he talks about how Abraham was justified by faith, or in other words, for, for those who might not know what that word means, made right with God by his faith. Uh, it's, it's because he believed God. He believed what God said, what God promised him. And so when I, when I think of faith, it's, it's hearing what God has said about himself and about the way that he saves people, uh, and believing him and not just believing him in the sense of giving some kind of intellectual assent, but believing him in the full sense of of trusting what he says, of of trusting it in kind of a deep, visceral way so that our lives are staked upon it, right? Um, yeah, well, yeah. it almost seems like that definition that Hebrews provides, it, it, it seems to suggest that faith itself has some kind of a physicality to it. It has some sort of, yeah. you know, 
embodiment, you know? Yeah, yeah. When that translation substance certainly is uh illuminating, right? Right. That faith faith isn't just a vague hope that someday right. something is going to happen, but it's it's taking hold of God's promises in a in a really deep way. Um, and to me, that gets, I mean, yeah. that seems to be quite mystical, actually. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, and that, that's why I said it, it, it does to some degree, right, go back to how you're defining mystical. Because I think Christian mysticism can be a great thing. I think we should seek to know God and take hold of him in a kind of, if you want to say, mystical way, in a very experiential way. Yeah. Yeah, because it seems like, I mean, I'm not familiar with the entirety of Christian mysticism, but I think a lot of the people that I have looked into, like, um, what's his name? Um, you might call um, St. Francis a yeah. certain early Christian mystic. Sure, and, yeah. Um, what's his name? Eckert something. Oh, Eckert Toll? No, not Toll. Oh. Meister Eckert. Oh, yeah, I don't yeah. know if you've heard of him. Yeah, I've heard of him. They're yeah. kind of both on this tradition of, I might be butchering this up, but... It's this idea of, and I think the Catholics actually view this as kind of a a heresy, actually. (laughs) Sitting alone with oneself, I guess, in this act of, I don't know if you want to call it meditation or what you want to call it, waiting for God, waiting for something to happen, for some kind of connection to come to you. What what do you think of all that? So, I don't know. I mean, I'm, I'm... It, I, I can't speak too much to those particular men in the sense that I haven't read much of their or like work, right, so I, right. I can't speak to that specifically. But um, I do, again, going back to being firmly rooted in how God has revealed himself, I'm, I'm not a fan of meditation in the Eastern sense, right? We're trying to clear your mind, right? Yeah. And wait for... Uh, I do believe in meditation, but I believe that Christian meditation should be meditation on God and what he has revealed about himself. And I do believe that opens us up to experience God and his goodness more. But I think we need to be rooted in that, right? We don't want to just be rootless and kind of out there searching for whatever. We want to be, okay, I'm meditating on on who God is according to God, right? And so a lot of this is driven by the, I have a fundamental belief, right? That God has revealed himself in a clear and authoritative way. I don't think it's uncertain, um, and so that drives a lot of my practice and belief, obviously, in this area. So as a Reformed Protestant Christian, yeah. how do you go about meditating? I think for like me... Like specifically. Yeah, yeah. Like very practically? Yeah. Okay, so so for me, I think meditation always at least has a component of... Well, not always. I shouldn't say always, but generally has a component of scripture memorization. Um, huh. So for me, the, the main way that I would say I meditate is by taking a section of scripture, uh, usually just a short verse or two, right? Although it can be longer. Um, turning it over in my mind over and over again, praying to God through this piece of scripture as I'm thinking on it, as I'm mm. turning it over in my mind. So for example, yeah, I, I memorized um, a while back, I memorized Psalm 34 verse eight, right? Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. So I would, I would, repeat that verse, if I'm alone, maybe out loud, or if not, in my mind, right, over and over again, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Okay, so so what does it mean that the Lord is good, right? And I'll, I'll meditate on that. I'll think, of that. I'll pray to God, like, 
what is your goodness? Show me more of your goodness, right? And, and and how do I taste and see more of that? Like God, I don't I don't feel like I've been tasting your goodness, right? And so and I'm mm-hmm. talking to God through all this as I turn this verse over in my mind. And so for me, meditation is not a solitary act. Uh, it's it's an intimate time of fellowship with God, um, reflecting on His Word with Him as a, this sounds weird, but as a conversation partner, so to speak, right? Asking him to, by his spirit, to illuminate his word to me more and to to bring home the experience of it into me more and more as I reflect on it. Um, so that that's what it would be for me. And so it is very different from right, an Eastern practice of meditation that you might get, but well, in some yeah. ways, it sounds kind of similar, actually. Really? How so? I mean, you might, I mean, a lot of like Eastern people who meditate, I mean, the idea is you have a mantra that you repeat okay. to yourself yeah. over and over sure. again that also sort of elucidates some understanding, some deeper understanding. Sure. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, there you go. Maybe it's not that different. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so there you go. But yeah, that that's a basic thing. And I would do, I think, in terms of meditating. Well, um, that's interesting because you were just saying that God graciously chooses to reveal himself to us yeah it's like almost it seems like meditation in this sense is is this sort of how do i say what's the proper word for this is it an invitation for god to come and graciously converse with us i i think med i think it's an act of faith i i absolutely do because god in his word promises that those who trust in him right that that they will taste and see his goodness, that by his spirit, he will be present with us, that he will give himself to us, that he will be our God. And so, I, it's not, it's, I definitely don't think it's not an ascent up to God. It's, it is really, I mean, maybe invitation is the right word, but it's, it's really, it's taking hold of what God has promised he's going to do. God has already said, for those who trust in me, I'm going to give you myself. I'm going to be your God. I'm going to give you my spirit. Ah. Um, and so it's really, it's trusting God's promise and acting accordingly. <laughs> so you must believe then that God is readily available to you at any given oh, time. Absolutely. I believe that I, I f- am a firm believer that God's spirit dwells within me. Huh? Huh? Yeah. Huh? But okay. Yeah. Then there's a part of you that isn't part of creation. No, it, it's not part of me, right? It's I am not God's spirit, oh. but God's spirit dwells within me. There's a distinction I'm making. I see. There. I so see. there's still the creator creature distinction, right? I am not God's spirit. Um, I am still a human being who has a divided heart. I, I I have a heart that desires God, and I still have some sin that remains within me that won't go away until glory. But but God has graciously given me His spirit. Let me let me read you. Let me. Yeah, this yeah. is worth exploring. I think so. John 14, when Jesus is about to go to be crucified. He's talking to his apostles and he says this. Um, he said, he's talking to his, his apostles right before he goes to be crucified. He says, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you yet a little while and the world will see me no more, but you will see me because I live. You will also live in that day. Will you will know that I am in my father and you in me and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me, and he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Again, there's that promise of revealing himself to us. Um, Let me skip ahead with him. Let me find this exact verse. Uh, So verse 25, these things I have spoken to you while I am still with you, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said, uh, said to you. 
Um, and then one of the key verse, sorry, I'm skipping around a little here, but one of the key verse, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. So all this, right? I mean, that's, I know it's kind of, again, rapid fire, fire hose, right? Right. But Jesus, Jesus makes these promises. Those who love me, those who belong to me, I will reveal myself to you. My father and I will make our home with you. I will send the Holy Spirit who will reveal the truth to you. So there's all these promises, right? That as a believer in Christ, I have his spirit. And there's other passages we could go to as well. But as a believer in Christ, his spirit dwells in me, right? The spirit of the living God dwells in me, not because I'm special, but because God has graciously given himself to me through Jesus. Right. Um, and so, uh, so I do believe I have ready access to God and that I know God um, and that he is present not because, and that can sound really conceited. It's not because I'm all great. It's not because I'm super wonderful and just know how to get to God better than anyone else. It's because God has been gracious to me. Yeah, yeah. Oh, there's a lot we could do with that too. Yeah. <laughs> how would you distinguish meditation then and prayer? Is there a difference? I think those categories overlap. Um, yeah, I... I... I think they overlap very heavily. Um, prayer is more specific, I guess you could say, right? Prayer is the act of speaking to God um, by faith, I would say. Uh, and meditation is kind of broader in the sense that it involves, and the tricky thing is prayer can involve meditation, right? But med- meditation is turning over the truth of God in your mind, right? And it, and it involves speaking to God about that truth mm. as well. But so they're dis- distinct terms, but related terms. It seems oftentimes a prayer is accompanied by some form of request to God. That is the tendency, right? And, and that's not bad. And since I think it's good as, as a believer, again, I think those who have trusted in Jesus are children of God. We belong to God. He has given himself to us. I think God welcomes our requests. He he wants us to come to him as little children and ask. Um, I think that's a good thing. But there is the danger, right, of just falling into this this tendency of I go to pray and it's just like, dear God, please, you know, fix this for me. Give me that. Uh, let this work out. Uh, oh, and I want this, this, and this. Okay, amen, bye, right? And And there's no savoring of God himself. There's no fellowship with God. That's a real danger. Yeah. I think. So requests aren't bad in and of themselves. And in fact, God welcomes our requests, but they should be in the context of, you know, I'm speaking to the living God, the creator of heaven and earth, the one who sustains all things by the word of his power. Like, let me just enjoy you for a second. Let me fellowship with you. And then out of my just recognition of who you are and who I am in relation to you, the fact that you have saved me and made me your child, okay, now this, let me ask. And it doesn't even mean your request is going to be granted. No, no, not at all, right? Um, I think anyone who's prayed realizes that. (laughs) Well, I think it holds true on the level of talking to God for requests. I think it also applies to asking each other for requests, you know, mm. oh, to, to make parallel. a proper request to somebody, yeah. it's like you have to come to them with this sort of open heart, this certain honesty about yourself, you know, Yeah, that you know that you can ask for something, but you, 
needs ultimately to be in the context of relationship right, right? and you yeah. and you and if you don't get it it's not gonna it doesn't mean that you sever things it doesn't mean that you just give yeah. up and you say yeah. i don't believe in you anymore because no. you didn't fulfill my request that's a good perspective yeah on multiple levels that's important right because you don't just you don't just go up to well i mean maybe you do but you don't if you have a good relationship with your parents for example your relationship isn't only going to consist of you going to them and saying hey buy me this buy me that give me this right there's going to be more to that relationship and you're right yeah if they say no um hopefully you're not just going to be like well you know f you bro i'm out uh and the same with god right especially if we truly believe he is who he says he he is if we believe he's wise and good and does everything for the good of his people then yeah, that's, yeah, that's important. And I guess for me, I I believe that the spiritual truths on the highest level also apply on all other levels as well. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, and it, it makes sense if if God's the one who made us and made the world around us, right? Then as we learn about Him, it should explain <laughs> the world around us a lot as well, right? Right. Um. Yeah. So. So absolutely. In other words, a deeper understanding of spiritual truth actually does equate to a very practical truth oh yeah oh yeah no doubt about that i th- i think yeah people think that theology or spirituality sometimes is just kind of vague and impractical but i think it's the most practical for for many reasons <laughs> um but i mean we're talking about literally the creator of the universe the one who designed everything the one whose very breath is keeping you and i alive right now um and so there's nothing more practical <laughs> or more relevant to our day-to-day life. Yeah. 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 That's good. So where does Christ come into all of this with relation to God? Well, Jesus is God. Uh, he's He's the fullest revelation of God. Um, so in one sense, right, that's when we're talking about Jesus, we're talking about God, we're talking about the same thing. Um, but more specifically... Um, and this isn't going to be another little theology crash course, if you don't mind. I know. Um, so as a Christian, I believe in the Trinity. Uh, so I believe that God eternally exists as three persons, one being three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's a very, there's a lot of, you know, fine distinction here. And the Trinity is very mysterious. Uh, and to people who say, well, it doesn't make sense, you know, I'd say, well, if God made total sense to you and I, that would be a little weird, wouldn't it? Um, but but God God exists eternally as Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Um, the persons are distinct. The Father is not the Son. The Son is not the Spirit. The Spirit is not the Father. But they are one God. And so uh, there's not three gods. And there's not just uh, God manifesting himself in three different ways. There's one God in three persons or you could say three uh the greek word is hypostasis it'd be you could subsistences uh if that's a more helpful way to think about it so uh i believe that jesus christ the historical person jesus christ is god the son uh who has incarnated himself in human flesh and has joined himself to a true human nature uh and so jesus himself is fully god he is god the son the second person of the trinity but he's also fully human uh and so, uh, the reason that Jesus came uh, is because God graciously chose to reveal himself and to save sinful people. Um, Jesus is God coming down to save people 
and bring people to himself who have no other way of getting to him. Uh, as I mentioned before, right, I, I'm, I believe that uh, ever since our first human parents, uh, Adam and Eve, the first humans, uh, rebelled against God, human, humanity has been fundamentally sinful. We naturally rebel against God. Uh, we are estranged from God. And because of that, we are unable we're unable even to turn back to God. We're unable even to seek him in our natural state. And so God graciously uh, came down in the person of Jesus Christ uh, and not only revealed himself to us. First of all, Jesus is God revealing himself to us, but then also lived a perfect life of obedience as a human, right, to God's law. Um, and then died and bore the penalty for sin for all of his people. So that all who trust in Jesus, um, instead of having God punish us for all the ways we've rebelled against him, uh, that punishment has fallen on Jesus. Yeah, and it's interesting. I, I, I'm going to bring up Romans again just because yeah. it's fresh in my mind. Yeah. Paul makes an interesting, um, I guess, this is his... Um, I don't know, his theory or whatever you want, his argument, Yeah, you know, that the first man, Adam, sets up the mm. world for yeah, all of sin to come out. And then Christ is the, the one man who, who sets the stage for all of graciousness for humanity. Uh-huh. You know, it's yeah. like the opposite duality, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So Adam, the first man, right, brought sin and death to humanity and through Christ, uh, salvation and and justification rightness with god being reconciled to god is brought right and so yeah christ in in romans 5 is compared to the second adam so so yeah he he reveals god but then he also perfectly fulfills what we should have done right obeying god he he bears the penalty of our sin uh which the his death for those who have heard the story of jesus dying on the cross before the punishment for our sin was not simply the fact that jesus died a physically painful death it was that when he died all of God's wrath was poured out on him. So his suffering is so much more than just the physical pain he suffered. Uh, he suffered the judgment of God uh, as he died on the cross. But then he didn't just die, right? He rose again from the dead and defeated death so that all who trusted him not only are forgiven, but are given eternal life, are no longer held by the power of death. And so Jesus is God himself revealing himself to us, uh, graciously taking our sins upon himself uh, and then offering to us eternal life. Um, and so Jesus is the way to God. He is the one true way to know God. Jesus says in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Uh, no one comes to the Father except through me. Uh, and so Jesus is the way that God has made for us to know him. Um, and I'm I'm just going to go on on a little spiel here. You can stop me if you feel like I, if this is irrelevant, but but to those who are listening who maybe aren't believers who have not had much contact with Christianity like okay, big deal, like why do I need to know God? Like who cares, right? Um but God if grant me for a second this premise that God is the creator, okay? Just imagine with me for a second. If God is the creator and if what God says is true, right? Then what God says is that he made us to to glorify him by knowing and enjoying him. And so the only way every single one of us, right, has experienced the the fact that the world is a broken, <laughs> dark, pitiless, miserable place, right? Um and, and the only way to have your soul truly satisfied is 
to be reconciled to God. The only way uh, to essentially have, to, to fulfill the purpose that you were made for, to be who you were made to be, is to be reconciled to God. And the way to do that is through Jesus. God says, like, do you want to know who you are meant to be? Do you want to know who I made you to be? Well, that's knowing and enjoying me the source of all goodness, the one who made you, right? Uh, and that can only be done through Jesus. That's why it's important. I just want to point that out because that might just seem like, okay, like who cares? But uh, I believe that it is the fundamental question. If we want to know what we are meant for, what we were made for, it's to enjoy God and to experience his goodness and to glorify him as we enjoy him. Mm, mm. And I suppose to partake in the creation in the most, most joyous manner possible. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Enjoying creation is absolutely part of enjoying God's goodness and glorifying him, right? Yeah, I'm not, I'm certainly no um, ascetic. <laughs> I, I'm a firm believer that God gives us good things to enjoy. That's interesting. What do you yeah. think of asceticism? I, I see where it comes from, and I I, I understand the impulse but I think it misses a fundamental truth about creation, right? Where Scripture does not paint this picture that creation is evil, like the, this kind of Gnostic distinction that matter is mm-hmm. evil and the spiritual is what is good, right? There's this kind of dualism. That's a kind of a natural tendency I think a lot of people have. Although I don't know, I'd be curious to, if you think that tendency is current in our society today. But, but we can come back to that. But, but I think... Scripture teaches that creation is fundamentally good, right? When when God creates in Genesis, it describes it as good, right? God on the f- the first day God creates and it's good. The second day God creates and it's good. Every day that God creates it is good. Now, there's a there's a shift in the sense that after the fall, when Adam and Eve sin, all of creation is plunged into death and decay with them as a result of their sin. And so creation was made good, but is fundamentally now broken in some way. It's fundamentally marred. Um, And so there is a need for us to beware of the danger of, of turning the creation into an idol, of making the creation something it was never intended to be and letting it take the place of God. But when we put creation in its proper relationship to God, then it is me- it is meant to be enjoyed and meant to be used well. It's not as if creation is evil. God made it for us to use, right? Yeah, there's seems to be, especially in this current age that we live in. You know, I think there's this resurgence of these sort of new agey kind of beliefs. Yeah, that's true. This idea that there are all these different. How do you say? I don't know how you would describe it. These manifestations or like images um that god reveals himself through through various forms of divination you might call it yeah and in some sense it's like uh, how god really reveals himself could be much simpler than that Mm -hmm. you know you don't actually need all of these uh sort of i might call them uh addendums to to experience god yeah. Well, yeah, it's trying to ascend up to God, right? It's, or to conjure God in some mm-hmm. way. It's trying to, I mean, humanity has this wonderful, I mean, not wonderful, that's sarcasm, this terrible <laughs> tendency, right, to try to 
wrangle God, right? To try to take control of him right. and manipulate to him. To fit in God some into way. this logical boundary. Yeah. And so, like, okay, I know that I can manipulate God in this way uh, if I do this Steps ritual. Steps A, B, right? C. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And and faith is something fundamentally opposed to that. Faith says, okay, there are ways I can access God because he has promised them to me, but I can only meet God on his terms, which is, I think, the exact opposite of what our natural tendency is to do, which is to try to conjure God up and control him. And put God into our little box yeah. that we... Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. That, and that's a tendency that runs all throughout human history, right? I mean, when you look at the Old Testament and you look at the pagan nations that surrounded Israel, they would... I mean, they would make sacrifices to their gods all the time. And their whole... The whole premise of their system was we can manipulate our gods by doing the right rituals, by making the right sacrifices. Well, there is right? something interesting here about this subject, this subject of divination specifically. Yeah. Because it does seem, especially in the Old Testament, that God reveals himself through these peculiar signs, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I think of the story of Gideon, for example, where, you know, Gideon specifically asks for a sign and yeah. God gives him the sign in, in the form of the, the wet lamb, you know, cloth. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And God in the Old Testament did choose to reveal himself, I would argue, in ways different from how he generally reveals himself I see, now. I see. The important distinction, I think the thing that scripture emphasizes over and over again, though, is that it's always God's prerogative, right? It is never a case of God is bound to do something because he... because humanity has this right and he's obligated to us uh, whenever god reveals himself it is always out of his own gracious free choice right and so that's why i mean there's the whole sacrificial system in the old testament right and the other nations had sacrificial systems too that they used to try to manipulate their gods air quotes there for gods right but israel's sacrificial system was fundamentally different in that it was given to them by god and premised on the fact that it would be done by faith. It was a sign right. of of the truth about God, but it was never a way to control God. And right. that's why later in the Old Testament, you see the prophets uh, just going in on Israel for the fact that, you know, they God tells the Israelites, why do you trample my courts? Who has required these sacrifices from you? Like, well, you did. You told us to make these sacrifices, but but the Israelites are missing something fundamental. They, they've they shifted into this mindset where they think just by completing the ritual, just by doing steps A, B, and C, they can make God do whatever they mm-hmm. want. But they've missed the point that these sacrifices are merely a sign of their approach to God by faith, not a way to control yes. God. Yes, yes. Right? So, in some sense, like there is a certain truth to the whole, I don't know, essence of divination in the sense that... God can reveal himself through anything basically but sure. we can't we can't make a practice of it we can't say you know th- you know because yeah. God revealed himself in this way one time it's going to happen every yeah. time right you know? god yeah we can't make a, a a certain science out of it god is fundamentally free right and so yes. yeah he he can reveal himself however he pleases um and i would argue that he has given us certain means that he has promised to reveal himself in right so i like i believe he reveals himself through scripture yeah. i believe he re- reveals himself in prayer in uh and in the sacraments we which is connected to the word we could talk about those but um but it's fundamentally even with those you can't make them into a way to manipulate god right it is god's prerogative to reveal himself 
Um, and it's we're we're blessed that he has chosen to tell us how he'll reveal himself. Uh, you know, like he doesn't have to do that. Now, this um, is something interesting to kind of go back to an earlier idea you mentioned about yeah. the the Gnostic idea of like, um, what was it? Um, kind of uh, the duality between, I suppose, body and God, you know, the physical yeah. body and, and the spiritual realm. Yeah. Have you ever tried fasting, Andy? Yeah. Yeah. What was I, your experience like? I mean, honestly, so, I mean, I've gone through periods of my life i haven't done this recently but i've gone through periods of my life where i've fasted regularly um i i i didn't you know have some kind of like crazy out of body experience i the way that i practice fasting you know it's i set aside the time that i would be eating for extra time praying and reading scripture and meditating and that sort of thing and um i have found it to be a helpful way um to focus focus in on god and kind of like sharpen my spiritual senses if you will that's the sense i get too yeah is that so it's not it's not i haven't had like any crazy experience but it has been a helpful way to kind of uh yeah sharpen my spiritual senses and and just kind of focus in if if you will i don't know well it's interesting to me you mean you, you hear all these stories of people who especially in physically very intensive situations who there there does seem to be to me some correlation between the more like how do you say the less attentive we are to our physical needs the more attentive we can be to the spirit yeah yeah no there and there is an element of truth to that that's where this gets sticky right i mean i do yeah. think especially because of the sin that remains within us. I believe, I mean, again, as a believer, I still believe I have some sin within me and that will until, until the Lord returns. But um, there is, because of our sin, there's a tendency, right? To let the pleasures of the flesh, to let the good things of creation uh, overshadow the goodness of God, right? And become idols. Even if we're not bowing down and worshiping them explicitly, right? We make them into idols, by by seeking their goodness more than we seek God's goodness. Um, and so there is a sense in which, right, restraining from those pleasures uh, is a means of focusing in on God and his goodness, of of really, you know, honing on on what's truly good. But I, 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 I can't be sold on the idea that absolute asceticism is yeah. the wisest course. Because I, I, I think on the flip side of that, when we are focused on God as the highest good, um, we can also enjoy created things in a richer way. Uh, and I think sometimes that's not how we think of spirituality a lot of times, right? Uh, but it's an important truth um, because God has chosen in some ways to reveal his goodness through his creation, right? Um the Psalms, I think it is, say, you know, God has given us wine to make the heart of man merry, right? Uh, you know, like God gives us good things to enjoy, but to enjoy them in their proper place as ultimately pointers to his goodness. And so if we find ourselves uh, putting created things above God or seeking them before we seek him, then yes, I think getting rid of those things, uh, being ascetic in a sense is a necessary step, but it's not an absolute principle. 
Well, this is something that I've thought about quite a bit, actually. It's interesting because, okay, obviously, the kind of lifestyle that we lead is very different from biblical times. Oh, it's yeah. also oh, yeah. even more uh, astray from how humans originally sort of naturally existed within nature. Yeah. You know, it's like we live in a society where abundance is just so like yeah. it's it's like how this isn't how do you say this we're living more and more in the metaverse and less and less in god's verse yeah you know no and sorry finish your thought finish your thought so it's like I'll, you know I'll, in I'll in, jump in in the old days it's like you would never be able to drink like a coke you know you yeah. would never get that much sugar yeah ever in your whole life yeah. and you know if, if you even got a little bit of sugar you know it it would cause you to you know, on some level, that sweetness, you know, it causes you to relax. It causes you to like, feel like on some biological level, my mission has been, you know, I've succeeded. If you, if you, if you, you were lucky to get like, you know, to kill a bison and, and yeah. or whatever it is. Yeah. You know? No, you bring up a great point there. I think, so one actually, and before, even as you were starting that point, one caveat that jumped into my mind as I was talking about this is I think in my own life and in our culture generally, we err on the side of over enjoyment, yes. not asceticism, yes. right? Yes. I think, and I think that's why we we view asceticism so highly is because it's so foreign to us, right? Right. But I, it's I the think opposite extreme that we're it, exactly what we're on exactly. And I, I do think, and personally as well, I think we tend toward overindulgence. And so, I think a, a healthy enjoyment of creation, and I've been reflecting on this too uh, in my own life, is will might look like asceticism to our culture, yes, right? Yes. That doesn't mean it's actually absolute asceticism. Right, right. Uh, but I think a more restrained lifestyle, I think a more restrained enjoyment of created goods will actually lead to a richer enjoyment of them as well, right? Um, so Someone, I can't remember who this is, so I can't give proper credit, but and I'm paraphrasing as well, but someone said something along the lines of, you know, um, because we've forgotten how to fast, we also don't know how to feast, uh, right? Like, because we we don't really know how to restrain ourselves, how to forego good things, we also don't really know how to enjoy them either. We've caused the right? feast to be the norm. Exactly. And then it loses its significance as a feast, right? And so, um, so yes, I, I, I do want to say I... I'm a firm believer in self-denial, right? Jesus calls us to take up our crosses, follow him and deny ourselves. And so we do, and and especially in our cultural context, we do need to uh, deny the pleasures of creation. We need to deny our desires. We need to learn uh, to look to God as the source of satisfaction because nothing no pleasure of this life will ultimately satisfy you. No matter no amount of sex you can have, yeah. right? No amount of food you can eat, no amount of you know art you can create, nothing is going to satisfy you but God Himself. God created us to be satisfied with Him. And that's why we need we just keep feeling like we yeah. need more and more, right? Well, and again, it's like we're not enjoying creation. We're enjoying creation in this shiny box, creation plus, creation TM. Exactly, right? And so only when we learn to enjoy God only when we learn to be completely satisfied in God so that we don't need anything else. Can we then truly enjoy the gift of the good things he gives us? I think that's a really important distinction to make. So you have to have, this is probably a healthier way to express it than I did earlier. You have to have asceticism before you can enjoy creation. 
I just don't want, I also don't want to say asceticism is it, right? So you, you have to first be satisfied with God alone. Only God can satisfy your soul. And then once you're at that place, you can enjoy the good gifts he gives us as a reflection of his all satisfying goodness. If that makes sense. It's very interesting. I know you're a little hesitant to make these comparisons to the Eastern religions, but <laughs> the whole idea of like, you know, the Buddhist way, you know, yeah. it's like to sit down just by yourself without needing anything, you know, sure, sure. Trying to get to a state where, yeah, you, in some sense you are, I guess you could say you are connecting with God as, yeah. as clear mindedly as possible. Sure. Um, I guess, I don't know. I mean, and I'm no expert on Buddhism. I My own understanding, though, I mean, some fundamental distinctions. I, I My own understanding, what I've heard about Buddhism is God does not, first of all, in Buddhism, God's not personal in the same way that he is in no, Christianity, no. right? He also does not condescend and come down to us in the kind of gracious way that he does in Christianity. No. Um, so, yeah. so there are some parallels, but I would want to say there's also some stark differences right, as indeed, well. Right, indeed, indeed, indeed. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. One thing that I think my audience will be curious to know is yeah. why why do why do you speak of God, you know, as as he, you know? Cuz that's how he's revealed himself. Um <laughs> I'm not going to make the corny joke. I there's a corny joke I can make, but I'm not going to make it. Um <laughs> but no, because that's how he's revealed himself. I God, I mean, obviously God is a spirit. I said that when I read that definition, right? Yeah. God is not he doesn't have a physical body, although God the Son has manif- has incarnated in a human body, which is male. But that doesn't make God fundamentally male. But so God doesn't have a physical gender, okay? Right? He, but He's chosen to reveal Himself. It's funny, actually. Some eighth graders at my school. Well, I was on lunch duty today. I had to be with the eight, the middle schoolers during lunch, and some of them were asking me that exact same question. Like, well, is God non-binary? Yes. Like, why why do we always talk about God as Him, as Father, as yeah. this? Right? What's well, because that's how God has revealed himself. And if we know God on, this goes back to, right, we know God on his terms. We don't get to define God. We don't get to determine how we know God. We know God on his terms. And so because he has revealed himself using he, because he has revealed himself as father, right, in all these ways, that's how we know him. Um, it doesn't mean that he is biologically male. He's not, right? But but we only know God as he has revealed himself to us. And it would be arrogant and ultimately wicked for us to presume to, to know God in some other way. Well, there's something interesting, I, I yeah. think, that, that ties in with this. Especially in the Old Testament, God is referred to by many different names. Sure, you know, sure. And all, it's almost like every different name tells you a different quality about God. Yeah. The very first name that in the original Hebrew, a God is referred to by is Elohim, yep. you know? And Elohim is this interesting word because it, it refers not to God as a, a, a singular, but actually plural, as a yeah. plural. Uh-huh. And it sort of seems to suggest that God incorporates this sort of duality from the get-go. My, so here's my hot take on Elohim. Yeah, yeah. I think Elohim is a foreshadowing of the Trinity in the Old Testament. Yeah. So yeah. So I, I think it's it's a revelation, a hidden revelation, right? It's not fully revealed, but it's a it's a hint that is fully revealed later in the New Testament that that God is eternally exists in three persons. So there's a there's a plurality within God who is one, if that makes sense. 
which it doesn't, but that's okay. Well, and here's a really hot question for you. Oh, give me a hot question. I'm waiting. I love it. Where does femininity fit in with God? Where does femininity fit in with God? I mean, I think femininity is an essential part of what it means to be human. God made us male and female. Uh, The image of God in humanity, right, is both male and female. Um, And so... You can't, the humanity as it exists, right, is fundamentally uh, needs both masculinity and femininity, right? God made us with both of those genders, both of those sexes for a reason. Um, so, but within God, I mean, so you can look, there are biblical passages where there, there's never a biblical passage where God is called mother or referred to with feminine pronouns, but. So I would never do that. I think it's wrong to do that. But mm. there are passages where God is referred to in a more like feminine way. Like the Old Testament will sometimes describe him as like a mother hen protecting his chicks under his wings, right? Um, and things like that. Or like a nursing mother even. And I think it's Psalm 133. So there are images, right, that kind of connect that element to God. But I also think this, this represents a, a dangerous trend in our culture. We don't need to ground our understanding of gender in the character of God. I think that's a really dangerous thing to mm, do, actually. Mm. Um, and it's a really common thing to do, which I think can lead to extremes on both sides. It leads to extremes in conservative circles where like, you get absolute male domination. I see. Um, and it leads to extremes on the other side where you get you know androgyny. Uh, we shouldn't ground our understanding of gender in God's character because God is not gendered now he uses gendered language to describe himself and we should pay attention to what is being reflected there but gender is a human characteristic not a divine characteristic does that make sense i see and so when we want to talk about okay what is masculinity what is femininity we don't look to god to define we don't look to the character of god to define masculinity we look to what god has said about humanity Right. And that's how we can define masculinity or femininity. Does that make sense? Yeah. I mean, it's almost like what you're basically saying, okay, is God reveals himself through these, the, for whatever reason, and maybe it's mysterious through masculine, you know, pronouns or whatever sure. you want to call yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah. You know, um, now there are some interesting things to explore here. I mean, yeah. I mean, it, it brings, you know, because because one thing, you know, that is very obvious that comes to my mind is the mother of Christ, you know. Sure. Yeah. And and the mystery surrounding that. Sure. Yeah. And I mean, I'm not Roman Catholic, so I'm not, I don't believe that she was sinless or anything like that. I, I have a much less mystical view of Mary than like a lot of Roman Catholics, at least. But, but it's interesting um, just because, you know, Christ's father is really not even, you know, his his. He didn't have a biological father. Yeah. Yeah. He only had a biological mother. Yeah, absolutely. And that, it goes back to, again, this is why I think it's so dangerous to try to ground our understanding of gender in God, right? Um, I mean, we should ground it in what God says, but in his character, because, right, God created male and female fundamentally equal in dignity and value, right? Both men and women are made in the image of God. Now, I do think there is some there are some differing roles for men and women and we could talk about that. Oh, uh, yes. But but yes, women are absolutely essential, right? Women are amazing. I mean, I watched my wife give birth last year. I mean, I have 
that that raised my respect for women incredibly women are incredible and we need women like women are awesome so i'm not downplaying women at all but we we shouldn't try to then go back and say okay so we have to read femininity into god's character we have to read masculinity into god's character that's not the point uh. right like we can get the dignity and the value of both men and women from what God has said and how God has made us without going back and trying to read ourselves into the character of God. And do you get what I'm saying? Yeah. So yeah. we, I just think we need to be real careful about that because that's a common thing in our culture. I mean, our culture is so fixated on gender, both conservatives and liberals, right, are fixated on gender. It's just like this huge issue. Right. And so it becomes this thing where, okay, we're going to read whatever I think about gender back into the character of God. And that's just not how God is. That's not how God reveals himself. So yes, Mary is a prime example, right? Of how God used a woman to bring about the salvation of the world, right? Uh, he used not, not only a woman, but a, a very, um, a very lowly, unsuspecting woman, right? God uses the lowly things of this world uh, to accomplish his great purposes. Uh, he used other women as well. He used a prostitute. Rahab, right, was an right, ancestor right. of uh, Jesus, Christ, yeah. right? She's a Gentile prostitute, pretty much as far from yeah, what you think yeah. of, right? Uh, and, and and Ruth, who was a Moabite woman, right, is in the, is in the lineage of Jesus. So women are absolutely important. Women are an essential component of human nature like women are just as important as men in god's design for creation but we we just can't go back and then try to like read gender into god because that's just not who god is i don't know that, that that's that's my spiel on that i don't, I don't know if that is helpful <laughs> no that's but. interesting yeah i'm curious to hear your opinion on this like why do you think that Christianity as a whole, too many people, I mean, it's the it's the largest religion in the world. Yeah. Why does it get such a bad rap with uh, with people these days? Because people are sinful, you know, um, including Christians. Um, I mean, we can, that's a very broad. It's very broad, yeah. Right? So, but I mean, I can get into specifics. If we want to talk about within America. Sure. Um, I think Christianity gets a bad rap in America for several reasons. There's, I'll give you two main reasons. Okay. First of all, maybe the biggest one is I think there's a lot of nominal Christians in America who aren't actually Christians. I think there's a lot of people who would call themselves Christians. There's a lot of cultural Christianity left over in America. Um, and so there's a lot of people who would call themselves Christians who are not, uh, Christians. They're not believers in Jesus Christ. They have not repented and truly trusted in Jesus. Uh, and, and have, they've not been made alive by God's spirit, right? So that's one issue. And when you have people who aren't Christians who go around proclaiming their Christianity, what ends up happening very sadly is Christianity becomes kind of just like this banner for whatever other social causes or personal things I want it to be, right? And so the message of Christianity, the good news of what God has done in Jesus gets distorted, uh, gets misrepresented. It becomes, you know, uh, just another banner to raise in the culture wars, whatever, right? And so that's one issue is nominal Christians, false professors. It's a huge issue. Um, second reason, and I think these two work together, is I think that Satan always opposes God's kingdom, right? And so I think that cr true Christianity, first of all, I mean, 
false Christianity gets a bad rap, right? With nominal Christians. But, but I also think that true Christianity is always going to be facing an uphill battle in the world uh, because Satan and the kingdom of darkness, the kingdom of sin that exists in our created world is fundamentally opposed to Christ and fundamentally opposed to God. And so sinful people don't don't want to hear about Christ. They don't want God to come anywhere near them, right? Because we instinctively know, even if we wouldn't consciously state it, we instinctively know because of our sin that God is dangerous to me when because of my sin, right? That God represents a threat to me and to my sin. Um, and so it's both of those forces. It's, it's false professors, but it's also sinful opposition to God. Uh, well, to go along with your first point, yeah. um, seems to me that yeah perhaps the best way to study um study christianity and study you know uh, christ himself is to get as close to the source as you possibly can yeah and i think a lot of the problem with christianity is that you know we've had We've we've had two thousand years since Christ's life, you know. Sure. There's been so sure. much sort of I would call it mythology that has been built around Christ that never was even there in the in the in the beginning. Sure, yeah. A lot of religious systems and things get built up, right? And and on that note, and especially going back to the idea of false professors, one thing that I just want to point out, which if if someone's still listening at this point, they're probably already doing this, but like so much of what people reject is not actually Christianity. One right. of the one of the things that's so sad in American culture and I see this all the time with especially with kids that I talk to and stuff is like so many people think that they have rejected Christianity but they actually haven't even heard the real gospel. They actually don't know what Christianity is. And that's a huge problem because we have so many people who think they know what the Bible is about, who think they know what Jesus is, but they've never truly encountered Christ. Right. And, And I've heard oftentimes like, you know, like writing off, God as the man, you know, the big white man in the sky. Yeah. Yeah. And that is a real tragedy. I mean, that is, which is not even, it's never, it's never, God is never described that way ever. No, no. Maybe that came from that painting. I don't know exactly when that. I mean, that's one, another great reform distinctive, Sam, is that I believe that all images of God, including images of Jesus are sinful. Uh, So you don't run into that problem so much. Why do you Uh, think that? uh, Because the second commandment, right? God says you shall not make a graven image or bow down to worship it, right? I believe that forbids all visible images of God, including images of Christ, because he's God in the flesh, right? Um, so you don't run into that issue, right, of portraying Jesus as a certain race or whatever. Yeah, um, I do think on some level God is unportrayable. Oh, exactly. This the, and this goes back to what we've been talking about—that God has to be revealed on His terms. Yes, yes, right. Only God can reveal Himself. We can't access Him by our own powers, by our own ambition. And so when we try to portray God visibly, what we're doing is we're actually creating an idol. And it's extremely arrogant of us, once again, to think that we could portray God apart from him revealing himself. To try to contain God into a single comprehensible form. Exactly, exactly. It all goes back to God is just too transcendent and too infinite to to be contained or to be manipulated, right? And so he only he can reveal himself um and that is just so fundamental and so but yeah so going back to that question of right of of why is christianity getting such a bad rap i mean i yeah 
a lot of people have rejected something that isn't really Christianity, which is yeah. sad. Um, well, okay, okay. We could go along that line. Yeah. But I think, to me, uh, something also interesting is, you know, okay, let's talk about the source material because okay. it's, it's a yeah. very interesting progression, you know. Yeah. And, you know, there were gospels that were written probably a little you know there's there's debate about this that we're not canonized sure yeah there's of course you know paul's uh letters were considered the first you know writings um, yeah but but it is interesting because they still came out years after christ's death and resurrection and so the idea is that the bible was initially or sorry the gospel was initially sort of formed through word of mouth sure yeah yeah, I mean, I have, I have, which, which inherently makes Christ a mysterious figure. Sure. Yeah. In in some ways, yeah. I mean, there are certainly things we don't know about Christ, right? Which I think is intentional. I think God gave us what He wants us to know. I I do. I I don't entertain any doubts about the fact that the canon of Scripture that we hold, which, uh, th- so basically, for those again, maybe not familiar with that term, the authoritative collection of books right. that make up the Bible, right, is, uh. Correct. In other words, like I believe that the books that make up the Bible that I'm holding in my hand right now, I'm holding a Bible in my hand, uh, are the authoritative books in which God has revealed Himself. And and there's reasons I think that. I mean, you mentioned other gospels, right? And uh, there were other gospels and other like portrayals of Jesus' life written, but they were. I mean, if you go back and look at it, the source material they're they're much later than the biblical gospels, um, and of a very different character. If you if you go back and look and the early church recognized that quite early on none of the other gospels uh received anywhere near the kind of reception that the four gospels that are in script in the Bible today received. What do you make um, of the, you know, the whole thing about John being, you know, dramatically different from the other three gospels? Yeah, I mean, I think that's intentional. I think God gave us four gospels to portray a fuller picture of who Christ is and what he came to do. Um, I don't, I, I am a, I will argue, you know, tooth and nail. I don't think there's any contradictions among the gospels, but there are differences in how events are portrayed uh, without contradiction. And I think God did that intentionally to give us a more well-rounded picture. Are you like familiar with the whole, you know, Matthew and Luke being based off of Mark and this yeah, mysterious yeah. Q the, document? Yeah. Form criticism, right? The whole question about, you know, which gospel was written first. For a long time, the traditional belief uh, was that Matthew was written first. More recently, most scholars believe that Mark was written first, right? right? And that Matthew and Luke both drew on Mark and, yeah, on another document, Q, which doesn't, no one has any actual physical evidence of Q. It's a hypothetical document. Right. And then there's also some, some scholars hold to some other hypothetical documents, M, which would be shared material between Mark and Matthew, and then L, which would be shared material <laughs> between Luke and Mark. And then also, you know, Matthew and Luke each have their own unique sources as yes, well, right? Yes. And and you get into this and like, okay, so some of it might be physical documents, some of it might be just oral tradition, like who knows? I mean, might be interesting to think about because of my view that, that the Gospels are inspired by God, uh, it... <laughs> At the end of the day, I'm like, okay, <laughs> you know, like, yeah, I, it doesn't really bug me too much. <laughs> it's almost like the evolution of the canon was also inspired, the history sure, of, of yeah, what eventually yeah. got through. Could there have been another document that, that Matthew and Luke both drew on? Sure. That, that's absolutely possible. 
uh, it doesn't really change anything for me at the end of the day, I guess. That's, yeah, you know. on some level, the fact that this is the canon that has persisted. Right. This is the canon that the... For, I mean, there's several criteria. Of course, of to, course, then there are multiple canons as well. Well, yeah. I mean, when you talk about the Old Testament, right? The, well, I'm talking about like the, books. the Orthodox canon versus the Roman Catholic right. canon. Well, but the New Testament is the same in, all, in Protestant, Roman Catholic, and Eastern Orthodox. Yeah, the, in the Old Testament, you have the Apocrypha, the Deuterocanonical yes, yes. books, that there's some differences between. And even amongst Orthodox churches, there's differences. I Again, I'm a convinced Protestant. I, I'm pretty confident that we have the Old Testament right. Um, but even if we don't, I don't know if that really changes anything in the sense that you know, at least from my perspective as a Protestant, if if the Roman Catholics are right, then all we're missing some things, but we haven't added anything that's bad. Whereas if we're right, the Roman Catholics, you know, they've they've added some things, which you know, I'm not. That's not my argument for it, but I'm just saying I I feel secure either way. I guess. Have you read um, any of the Apocrypha? Yeah, I I have for school and stuff. I've read some of Tobit and uh, some of Sirach and um, what's uh. What is it? Uh, the Book of Enoch. What is it? the one that's referenced in uh-huh, Jude? Uh-huh. I don't know. So I've, re- I mean, I've read excerpts. I haven't, you know, spent a ton of time reading them. The Book of Solomon is pretty interesting. Yeah, is it? But you know what? This might be like kind of, you know, very, you know, that's specific a very... and deep diving for for this audience. Yeah. Can we go yeah. back to what we were kind of saying? What are some of the things that that you think, you know, a lot of people who who just reject Christianity outright, what are some arguments that you've heard that have really nothing to do with Christianity? Have nothing to do with Christianity. Or or are, you know, misrepresentations. Yeah. Um, that's a good question. Like we, we had mentioned the one being, you know, okay, God is, you know, this this uh this just white guy in the sky yeah yeah i mean i i do think that's a big issue right especially with a lot of the cultural turmoil in america right now and in the west like there's kind of an identification of god or of christianity with a certain cultural subset uh and i i think that's you know just unfortunate that that it's panned out that way i mean um I do believe that, you know, some cultures are more right about things than others, but I don't think that God can be contained by any one human culture, right? And so to think that like, oh, you know, Christianity is a white man's religion, right? Or Christianity is just a tool used by oppressors to, you know, control other people. Those those are arguments that I think are born more out of resentment against false profession and against false representations of christianity and and i also think that those arguments can be applied to nearly every religion that has ever existed on the planet yeah i mean that's you know people like sinful people which is everyone like power and we'll use whatever we can to get power right and so of course people are going to use religion to get power um and, and i think christianity is so powerful as a as a tool of domination and abuse because it is true and so people are able to which that's not a good thing right but people are able to wield it so authoritatively i think because it's true um and so the sinful people are able to abuse the truth right um there's a there's a local spoken word artist that i have listened to for a long time his name is levi the poet have you ever heard of him yeah yeah he in one of his songs there's a line that stuck with me he says there's no better shape to use for a scepter than a specter of truth right so it's 
we have such an easy time setting up our own personal kingdoms, right? And, and setting up our own power by using elements of the truth to yes, do so, right? Yes. And that's why I think Christianity has at times been wielded so e- in such an evil way, because I think it's true. And so it carries this inherent power that people then abuse. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And that's a shame too. It does, doesn't do any, because I mean, it, okay. If you don't even believe in Christ, if you don't believe that he's the Messiah, at the very least, look at what he said, you know, the teachings, I believe there is immense truth to gain from. Like, oh, yeah, yeah. The, the lessons, the proverbs that he teaches, you know. And I, I agree with you there, but I'd also want to push back that if you're going to take Jesus seriously and what he says seriously, you can't stop at just recognizing him as a teacher. Like, I, like Jesus makes it very clear that he is God in the flesh, uh, that he is the Lord of the universe, that he uh, came to call sinners to repentance and faith, to trust in him. And so, I, I want to agree with what you said and also disagree. And <laughs> sure, I yeah, understand. I, I, oh, sorry. Go ahead. Well, go I ahead. think I think the great test of faith is your ability to believe in mm-hmm. the fact that, or the tenet, the axiom that supernatural things can and do occur. Yeah, yeah, that's something we lose a lot, and even in Christian circles today, we're so naturalistic. It's very sad. Um, that's something I've, over the last few years, been really identifying in my own life, too, is just how, even as a professing Christian, right, I am I am so naturalistic. I'm so prone to just cut God out of everything except for the unexplainable things, um, which is just so unhealthy. Mm. Uh, yeah, so you're right. Yeah, right. That that faith has to, It's a, it does include a belief that, yeah, God actually does work in you know real ways and the argument perhaps is that christ is the ultimate form of that supernatural happening yes right christ is the ultimate inbreaking of god into the world right, right. yeah that's a- a- excellently put nice well said yeah yeah jesus is god revealing himself uh in the ultimate way yeah yeah, yeah. Huh. wow yeah man we really came full circle yeah, we, with that we, conversation we went all over the map there We've gone for quite a bit, but I think this has been a very nice sort of overview and a sort of a deep dive into a lot Certain of different things, realms yeah. <laughs> into Christ and, and Christianity. Yeah. Uh, m- let me ask you, Andy, like, what, what would you like to, to add and uh, how, how would you like to kind of wrap this all together? Okay. So, I, if to conclude, I guess, I mean, the, the, my last thing for those who are still listening at this point... First of all, if, if you're not a Christian and you've been listening this far, thank you for listening. Um, and I commend your willingness to hear me out and, le- and learn. And uh, my, my kind of closing plea, I guess, would be to truly uh, consider Christ and the offer of the gospel. Um, to, to recognize, I mean, look at the world around you, see how broken it is, see how fallen and sinful it is and and see how sin has not only wreaked havoc on the world around you but how sin is within you as well how it has wreaked havoc on you and then look to jesus uh to to bring you back to god who made you for himself look to jesus to reconcile you to the creator of all things um no matter how far you think you are from god no matter how distant you feel from god jesus uh is the one who can bring you back jesus is the one who who can 
redeem you, uh, who can make you whole, who can cover over all the sin and mistake you've ever made, um, his grace is sufficient for you. So I would encourage you, look to Jesus. Um, and if if you need places to start, I mean, the I've talked a lot about the Bible. Go to the Bible. Go to Scripture. I, I would encourage you, if you need a starting place, read the Gospel of John. Um, it's a great place to start to learn about who Jesus is and what he came to do. Um, and And also, with that exhortation, right? Consider Jesus. If you need to learn about him, if you want to know more about him, look to him in scripture in the gospel of John, a great place to start. But then also, um, don't let this just be an intellectual curiosity. Um, it's fun to talk about a lot of these things intellectually, uh, but ultimately I firmly believe that this is not just a matter of detached discussion, but this is a matter of life and death. That the gospel of Jesus is the way to life and all other ways ultimately lead to death. Uh, so choose life and turn to Jesus, uh, who is the source of all good things and the source of all life. All right. Well, thank you so much, Andy. Thank you for having me. I've really enjoyed this conversation. And thank you so much, dear listener, for tuning in. If you like what you hear and want to hear more, please subscribe to our Patreon at mostlywhelm.com. This is your host, Sam R.B., signing off.